We're democratizing the ability to have sensors in buildings to monitor earthquake structural damage from earthquakes and from other hazards as well. It's extremely important that that is scalable. And in order to do that, the technology needs to be extremely easy to install. Well, all of our guests have great stories to tell, and that's why we asked them to join us. It does make my life so much easier. And what I love about doing these interviews, it's a chance to make new friends talking to some of the incredible people who have built companies all around the world. But myself, with almost 30 years persuading insurance companies to adopt new technology and data, I've also had the great fortune to meet some fascinating people around the world. In today's interview with Andy Thompson, co-founder of SafeHub, I'm revisiting where my own introduction to insurance began, exploring how to understand and manage the risk from earthquakes. Now, I've known Andy for about 15 years, but I've known his co-founder, Doug Frazier, even longer. Doug co-founded one of the first catastrophe modeling companies, Ekicat, and that ultimately ended up being acquired by CoreLogic. I worked for Doug for five years, but this is not just a trip down memory lane. What SafeHub is doing is really fascinating. There's a lot of interest now in how IoT and sensors can help reduce risk to the benefit of building owners and their insurers, but the industry is still struggling to find the application for how to do this. Well, what SafeHub is doing is a great example of how, for as little as $1,000, everyone benefits from monitoring the performance of buildings in earthquake risk zones, with massive implications for creating resilient infrastructures and managing down loss costs. Matthew Grant here, and welcome to all our early risers, joggers, walkers, or any of you just hanging out. And who knows, maybe even some of you are back commuting now. And if this is your first time, well, I'm thrilled you've made it this far, but do hang in there. It's only going to get better. Now, we get a wee bit technical in this one, but do bear with me. I'll be jumping in and explaining as we go. And as usual, lots of great tips and a few good stories for you today. Andy, we've known each other for at least... 10 years. You're an engineer by background, which is tremendous. You seem to have a disproportionate number of engineers on these interviews, but I think that will probably reflect all the great people building businesses in insurance. Uh, You used to lead the catastrophe risk and insurance practice at engineering firm Ovarup, one of the biggest in the world. Uh, And then recently you founded this really intriguing business we're going to hear more about. Delighted to have a chance to talk to you now. Welcome. Thank you, Matthew. Great to be here. And yes, over the past 10 years since we've known each other, we've had many discussions about the need for building specific risk information that rolls up to, at the portfolio scale. We've had lots of discussions around that, and that's exactly what we're doing at SafeHub. So it's fantastic to be here. Well, for those listening, it might sound like you're just down the street from me in London, but you've actually been in San Francisco for uh, a number of years where SafeHub, of course, is now based. What, what took you over to San Francisco from the UK originally? Well, actually, I've, I've spent my whole life with a, with a foot in both countries. I was actually, um, you know this, Matthew, I was born in Newcastle. Yes, a Geordie with an American accent, but I grew up in the States. I did my postgraduate work at uh, University of California, Berkeley, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So after spending a few years with Arab in London, it was a natural fit for me to move to San Francisco where I again worked with Eric for another 13 years. And of course, San Francisco is not only a significant hub for earthquake science and engineering, it is also the best place in the world to start a technology company. 
Well, I don't think anybody would argue that, although we might put a vote into London as a great place to get people together to talk about the use of technology in insurance. So let's talk a little bit about SafeHub. Uh, so another great connection here. So your co-founder is Doug Fraser, who previously co-founded EcuCat, which has now sort of been absorbed into CoreLogic, one of the early catastrophe modeling companies, and also who I had the pleasure to work with uh, up until 1996. So uh, great to have that connection in there as well. Now, you're putting sensors on buildings to measure the natural resonance frequency of buildings. We'll talk a bit more about what that means. Um, but can you just explain really what problem you're trying to solve for uh, both companies and insurers? And I know your initial focus has really been more around the building owners than the insurance companies. Yeah. So Doug and Peter Yan have, of course, built EQE and Equicad, both in, you know, incredible companies. Equicad, of course, is one of the three prominent catastrophe modeling firms along with RMS and AIR that are still, of course, used today. Catastrophe models, mainly developed in the 1990s, were revolutionary at the time for quantifying risk to large portfolios, but they are not good, in fact, inappropriate for individual buildings. They are also static in the sense that they don't provide real-time data or real-time information about risk and damage to those buildings. So the problem that we are solving for our clients is around that. Some, some very difficult decisions need to be made very quickly after earthquakes. Should I evacuate the building? Should I continue operations? Should I initiate my crisis management plan? How do I interact with my insurers? These decisions are made with very poor and untimely information. The consequences of getting it wrong are significant, both from a false positive perspective shutting down operations or evacuating a building unnecessarily, and worse, from a false negative perspective, keeping people and operations going in unsafe buildings. We provide real-time, building-specific earthquake damage information to our customers to help them make those critical decisions when it matters most. Yeah, lots of really good reasons there. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to get out to Northridge Earthquake really in a few days after it happened. And you know, the thing that struck me to your point there is how much variability there is in damage and often how you can't actually see the damage in the building. And yeah, I think often you have to send out a structural engineer to go and look behind the facades and, and see what's going on. So I presume that's also a sort of key part of what you're doing when you, when you talk about you know, the way the data is being used to understand the damage to the buildings. Matthew, you hit on some great points there. And I've been involved either myself or sending teams to over you know, 30 to 50 catastrophes. Damage is in the eye of the beholder. A structural engineer can walk into a building and really in these situations, we are looking for cracks, right? We're looking for damage. If those cracks aren't accessible, you can't see those cracks. And so the ability for even a trained structural engineer to see damage is limited. And also the time it takes to get a, a trained structural engineer at that facility to make those, which are often very quick decisions, can be several weeks. And that time duration of several weeks, plus the fact that damage is at the end of the day in the eye of the beholder, makes it so that this technology is needed. And throughout my career, I've been involved in, as I said, numerous post-earthquake damage assessments. I've been involved in the assessment of buildings beforehand, 
And I've seen time and time again the need that customers have and the value created when building specific knowledge is connected with the portfolio needs of that organization. We'll talk a little bit more about the practical ways this operates. I mean, one of the things is that I've got to know you better in what you're doing that, you know, like a lot of great businesses, you've got one initial core use case, but there are so many other benefits that come out from that with the, with the data that can be used and in integrating it into risk assessment. But maybe just taking one step back, Andy, for those who, uh, aren't intimately familiar with how earthquakes operate and in particular how buildings perform in earthquakes. So could you just talk a little bit about, you know, how buildings react to earthquake and, and why different buildings react in, in different ways and therefore why it's so important to have sensors on individual buildings? I'm going to step back a bit even further and just sort of mention a little bit about how earthquakes happen again, because this is all relevant, right? I mean, tectonic plates are sliding past and over each other on the Earth's fluid-ish mantle. That sliding is not smooth. There's a lot of friction that is built uh, down there and, and is built up. The plates get stuck, and when they're unstuck, a lot of energy is released. Seismic waves then travel through the Earth at a few kilometers a second, and as they approach the surface, those waves are heavily influenced by the stiffness of the soil or rock of the surrounding site for the building. Stiff soil produces relatively high-frequency shaking and little acceleration amplification, and soft soil produces low frequency shaking with significant acceleration amplification. The ground then, of course, shakes the building. And how the building responds is a function of whether the building resonates with the earthquake. Think of a, when you think of resonance, I always think of a, of a, of a parent pushing a child on a swing. You can either push the child at the same frequency that the swing is moving and the child will go higher and higher. Or if you want to damp, if you want to slow the child down, then you can push at a different frequency and it'll sort of dampen the child and the child will will not swing as well. Same things happens between the ground and the earthquake. If it is a flexible building, i.e. if it has a low natural frequency of vibration, it will generally resonate with low frequency ground shaking. This is a great explanation by Andy, but we're getting into some technical stuff here. So I just want to make sure you got that last bit. So basically what Andy is saying is that all buildings wobble a little bit, but some wobble a bit more than others because they're more flexible. Now, earthquakes shake in different ways. A low-frequency earthquake will cause those flexible buildings to wobble more than a high-frequency earthquake. With too much shaking, a building reaches its elastic limit, and basically, well, it just snaps. As Andy goes on to explain, every building reacts to each earthquake in its own unique way. Some wobble and break, others stay standing. Make sense? Well, let's get back to Andy. The opposite is, of course, true for stiff buildings. If the building is shaken to a point that it reaches its elastic limit, then it is by definition damaged. All of these different attributes and aspects are extremely building specific. They're extremely dependent upon the site at which not only that area, but that individual building or certain parts of that building. It's extremely dependent upon how the building loses stiffness during the earthquake and resonates differently with that earthquake. All of that is extremely difficult, as you can imagine, to predict without actually touching the structure. We touch the structure with sensors and we're able to measure what happens 
to the ground. We're able to measure what happens in the building. We're, we're able to compare the two and see just how much the building moved. And very importantly, we're, we continuously monitor the natural frequencies of vibration of buildings and we monitor those before and after and during the earthquake to determine if those frequencies have shifted and by how much and what does that mean in terms of damage. Imagine a flagpole on a windy day blowing back and forth. That flagpole is moving as natural frequency of vibration. If a car then hits the flagpole, the, the flagpole is damaged. It's going to move at a different natural frequency of vibration. Those are the sorts of things that we pick up. So, Andy, thanks for that. You've given uh, what felt like an entire semester of earthquake structural engineering in about five minutes and did it very eloquently. So hopefully everybody listening can visualize why buildings sway and how they sway differently. So can we just talk about the sensors? So you've got these sensors uh, that are being attached to buildings that these are sensors are measuring activity in an earthquake. So I guess the first question would be, are they able to pick up the tremors that happen in non-destructive earthquakes? And how useful is that in terms of understanding the building's natural frequency? The sensors measure what happens at the ground level and the sensor measures what happens within the structure itself. For Small earthquakes, we're able to get a better sense of the natural frequencies of vibration of that structure, which are important in understanding how those buildings are going to respond in earthquakes to begin with. We can also get a sense as the earthquakes get larger and larger, when is the point that we start to get a tiny bit of damage? We start to get partitions failing, non-structural damage, all the way to when we start to get more structural damage. So there, there is a lot that we can learn from the smaller earthquakes as well as the large earthquakes. And yeah, as an engineer myself at one time, you know, what's really interesting about what you're doing, which is different from how people have looked at building vulnerability in the past, is this non-destructive testing. So you're actually able to measure the performance. So when you do get an earthquake that could potentially destroy a building or damage a building, you can then look at what the the, the key information is from that earthquake from the intensity and the depth of the earthquake and the peak ground acceleration presumably the building and then that's when you're actually able to go back to the building owner and tell them what they can expect from their building is that right based on what you've measured and what's happened for the actual earthquake that's just occurred that's right i was amazed during my education that so little of earthquake science is based upon sensor buildings we actually don't have a lot of sensor data of how buildings respond in earthquakes So the technology does two things. After an earthquake, we are able to determine how much the ground moved, how much the building moved, and whether there have been changes in natural frequency to that structure to predict whether or not there was damage and how much damage to that building so that our clients can make appropriate decisions. We are also in parallel measuring continuously different buildings being affected by small, medium, and large earthquakes throughout the world. That continuous knowledge, how buildings respond in small earthquakes, 
whether they become damaged in those larger earthquakes. At what point do they become damaged? How damaged do they become? How much they recover after earthquakes? All of that information, we've measured over a thousand earthquakes just to date. And the information that we have gleaned from that collection of data and being able to understand how buildings generally respond to an earthquake is already improving our understanding of the vulnerability of buildings and how those buildings would respond in an event. Yeah, that's so interesting. And now to come back to these sensors, I imagine if people are thinking about sensors, they're thinking about equipment has to be wired in, probably disruptive for the building owner. But that's not how your sensors work, is it? You've got a very cheap way of deploying sensors to your clients and partners. Our sensors are incredibly easy to install. Our technology is incredibly easy to use. We're democratizing the ability to have sensors in buildings to monitor earthquake, structural damage from earthquakes and from other hazards as well. It's extremely important that that is scalable. And in order to do that, the technology needs to be extremely easy to install. The sensor is self-installed by our clients. We ship it out. Our clients install it. It takes about one minute per sensor to install. We like one sensor close to the ground, like on the ground or first floor, and one sensor, if it is a taller building, in the upper half of the building. If it is a one-story building, like a big box store, for example, we have our clients install one sensor. If it is complicated, more. The sensors are used cellular to, to connect to the cloud, so we don't have to go through our clients' network. Can you talk about the cost of those sensors or how you, how you charge your, your clients? We charge $1,000 per sensor per year. So that's about $1,000 to $3,000 per building per year. That's it. That fee includes all hardware costs, cellular costs, training, and access to the platform. How are you selling it? How are you distributing and letting people know about what you're doing? We work with channel partners, and then we also have um, – it's a classic B2B sales structure as well, too. What's really interesting about this is one of the challenges I know for a lot of insurers trying to convince their clients to use sensors for mutual benefit, you know, risk reduction initially. Who pays for the data? But, I mean, the price you're offering, that's just a non-discussion, really. I mean, you've actually just facilitated an entirely new way of insurance companies engaging with their their clients, which, I mean, it's tremendous. And then I noticed yesterday, actually, you had a very nice article in RF. ID magazine, and of course, you have many of our listeners subscribe to that, but we'll put the links in the episode notes. Uh, and they listed some of your clients. I'm assuming these are uh, public knowledge, if or not, will have edited this out. So, on the basis of people listening to it, uh, it is public knowledge. But they talk about Amazon, FedEx, the uh, California Joint Power Insurance Authority, which I think insures about 100 cities in uh, in California. So, I mean, really good to see that you've got some you know, well established organizations operating at scale deploying our sensors and so often in this case it's getting those early adopters to take something on board and, and, and adopt it but you know, presumably you, the more companies you have using this the more uh, re- resolution there is to your network the more information you're getting the, the better it is for everyone yeah we're working with with fantastic early adopting customers and we are growing very quickly we just brought in a couple new customers this past month and 
we are shifting our sales to more of a scalable sales model. And just so talking through the, the sort of workflow, so you've got a customer, they've got some sensors in the building, they're all wired up, they're pumping out information to you back at SafeHub. You get a large damaging earthquake. So all the systems are going off, red lights are going off. How, how does that customer or the company that's got the sensors in their buildings, how do they get the information and how do they know what to do with the information they're getting from, from SafeHub? So our clients receive text and email alerts within minutes, letting them know that there was an earthquake that affected one or more of their buildings somewhere in the world and the extent of damage and financial loss to those buildings. We characterize structural damage as, as green, structural damage is unlikely, yellow, structural damage is possible, and red, structural damage is likely. We also provide those financial loss estimates. Our larger clients receive about one alert per day. Now, most of the time, those earthquakes cause no damage and our clients can go back to what they are doing. But occasionally, there is a damaging earthquake and the technology shifts focus a bit. It is now not just about informing that there is a problem. It is about prioritizing resources and managing the problem that exists. For this, our customers access our web-based platform with dashboard analytics to receive detailed information about each building that has been affected. We also provide detailed structural engineering information that can be used by boots on the ground, structural engineers that will inevitably be involved if there are damaged buildings. And this is a really important point, Matthew. Our technology supports engineers on the ground. We're not trying to replace those engineers. We support. We were talking at the beginning of this session about how damage is in the eye of the beholder and how difficult it is for structural engineers to actually determine whether there is any damage. We provide information that can help them make that decision better and faster, as well as, as we've discussed, provide information that is timely and very building specific about earthquake damage to our clients who may be in the opposite side of the world. And you mentioned insurance companies in there, both as distributors of the sensors. You've also got the named client with the joint power insurance authority. How does that relationship work between the insurer and the company? And I, and I, there's a number of ways we could answer this question, but maybe you could start off with a company that's got sensors and their insurer. How does that relationship typically work for the benefit, obviously, of both parties for it to make sense? So our customer is the insured right now. Our technology is working for the benefit of our client. If our client chooses to share that information with their insurer or their insurance broker, that's our client's decision. We certainly don't do that. So we provide that information to our client. Our client can use that information how they so choose. We are also, as we discussed earlier, doing two parallel activities here. One is we are using our technology for the benefit of our clients, providing that real-time building-specific earthquake damage information so they can make better decisions after events. In parallel, we are building what is essentially a catastrophe model 
that is based on sensors and data analytics, connecting building specific to portfolio risk. So our customers can, and they're beginning to use that information that we're collecting and giving them about their facilities to provide better information to their carriers to enhance insurance transaction. And we're already seeing that. We can also talk about supporting sensor-based parametric policies that greatly reduce basis risk because we're measuring what actually happened at the building rather than what happened in that region. And as we've discussed, what happens in the region doesn't define what happens to the building. So if I'm an insurer listening to this and I want to go and find out which of my clients are using SafeHub, is there a way that they can actually go and find that out or do they have to just go back and ask that client directly or do you make it easy in some way for them to ask that, that question? They can ask their customer. They can also incentivize their customer. They can say there is very affordable sensor technology that can provide valuable information for you after events and can also support us in the claims management of any given loss. And what about the brokers? I mean, they have a key role in this. If I was a broker listening to this, uh, so line up in an orderly queue, I'd be out there, I'd put down $100,000, go and buy up 100,000 safe hub sensors and give them to all my clients and the people that I wanted to be a client. I mean, it seems like such an obvious thing to go and do and massive return on value. Are you seeing the brokers all knocking on your door trying to get sensors for, for their clients or their competitors' clients? So, yes, we are getting a lot of interest from brokers, carriers, and we haven't mentioned mentioned reinsurers as well. Yeah, well, certainly if I'm listening to this as a broker, I, sh- I would, should be uh, sending emails rapidly, make sure I'm not missing out, because I would bet that if, if the broker's not giving this to their client, then somebody else will be doing it pretty soon. And they are, you know, they are such an enabler in many great ways of exactly this kind of thing. Uh, and then just talking, Andy, back to the data itself. So you're now, yeah, as you've described it, you're not just looking at individual buildings. You're starting to see patterns of data, uh, are you seeing anything unusual that as you, with all the frequency of the earthquakes, albeit the smaller ones, uh, touch wood you're getting in California? Uh, but any, any surprising things you're seeing as you're starting to monitor this and particularly the building response? It is amazing to see in the data that come through so distinctly to be able to see that on the same block, you have this building shaking so much more than this building, the ground, and this building responding so differently than this building, which from a purely theoretical perspective should have been modeled and should have behaved exactly the same. Those sorts of um, uh, differentiations have been, uh, um, I wouldn't say surprising, but been interesting, extremely interesting to see. Building specific matters. I think that's the biggest takeaway. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I could see potentially changing the way both buildings are designed, way earthquake risk is taught. I mean, actually, even I presume at some point to be able to get a you know, real-time assessment for people doing research and building design into how buildings are performing. So, so, again, as we said earlier, so many things that are interesting that spin out from this. You touched on this earlier, and it sounds like you're actually measuring earthquakes around the world. Are you actually installing sensors in countries outside of – I think you've got California, elsewhere in the U.S. and Canada. Is that right you, for your uh, – URA sensors. We have sensors now in several countries in 
in the world, the United States, Canada, Mexico, um, Japan, the Philippines, um, Europe. And that's just increasing. Our product is a global product. It's certified globally. We can ship and do ship them out um, globally. We have a cellular uh, system which connects to a lo- the local cellular network and service. We are also working increasingly with developing countries as well as developed countries. As we all know, you know the buildings there are not as well designed, not often built to code, less money there, less money for insurance. Some quite interesting things happening. People like Global Parametrics who are finding ways to help with disaster financing. You could, you know, pre, even pre-event, uh, less relevant for earthquakes, but you can see how it can make a huge difference. But on that last point, uh, for those that are listening and wondering what is the state of art in uh, earthquake forecasting from the engineer's perspective, uh, is it possible to forecast earthquakes? Are we still some way from that yet? Not yet. And some very experienced and accomplished seismologists would say never. I have an open mind to this, and, and there is some interesting work happening with satellite imagery, sensors in the ground, and the ability to analyze large amounts of data. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Never say never. So, Andy, it's been fantastic to have you joining us in State London. We've got a bigger and bigger U.S. contingent of organizations like yourselves. Great to hear just what was it the motivation for, for joining us as a member, and what are you looking forward to getting out of that? Well, listen, I mean, the world of insurance is changing rapidly through technology and InsTech is a fantastic format for, for sharing knowledge as this happens. We simply want to be part of the conversation. Uh, we want to learn and we think we have something to add to the conversation. Sandy, that's been great to hear all that. Really appreciate it. And just really good to see this get to the point where it's got to having it's known what you've been looking at over the years in, in lots of different ways. If people want to find out more about SafeHub or contact you or any of the team directly, what's the best way to get in contact? First of all, Matthew, thank you. Great discussion. Appreciate it. In terms of getting in touch or finding out more about SafeHub, it's, it's uh, safehub.io. Excellent. We'll put the link in the episode notes. Uh, well, Andy, I am very much looking forward to an excuse to come back out to California. It's been far too long since I've been out there. The sun always shines. People are incredibly friendly. You have good wine and good food. So all we need now is a lifting on travel restrictions and get back together again. I'd love to go and see one of these sensors in, uh, installed. I'd hopefully would not be there whilst an earthquake happened, but uh, really, really great to hear what you're doing. So thank you very much for everything and for sharing all that great insight. Great. Thank you, Matthew. What's so great about doing these interviews is I can then go off and use examples like this of why technology and InsureTech really is making a difference, and hopefully you too can now as well. Uh, and next time you see a picture of earthquake damage in the news, you'll know why some buildings fall over and some stay standing. Do please keep all the comments coming in about the podcast, and if you've got a moment and you're listening on your iPhone, it'd be great if you could scroll all the way down to the end of the episodes when you finish listening to this and leave some feedback and even a score. To find out what we're up to and why we now have 130 corporate members from around the world, head over to www.instec.london and please do contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us, hello at instec.london. <laughs>